Cosmos Science, news, magazine, podcasts, video and features. Welcome to Cosmos Country, where our reporters talk about dealing with climate change in rural and regional Australia. The climate system is complicated. If you do something in one place, it can have effects somewhere else. We can use nature to mitigate the impacts of flooding. But those once in 50 year events are now becoming the once in 10 year events. We are introducing a massive fire risk. We really would like to know what the truth of the matter is. So that's an absolute game changer. Hello everyone, this is Marie Lowe for Cosmos Country. Well, it certainly feels as though Mother Nature has flicked a switch with the sudden shift from deluge to dry air this winter. But whatever the weather, it always has an influence on Australia's waterways. Today, we're getting a taste of Australia's future water supply. It's a different flavour to the buybacks and quotas usually in the news. Instead, it's about water quality. Fire, flood, heat, dust, whatever the climate-related extreme may be, has an often underappreciated downstream effect, something I know from personal experience living on the Namoi River in New South Wales. If it doesn't end up in our rivers, lakes, dams and coastal estuaries, it certainly influences them. With me today is another member of my Cosmos team, Jamie Seidel. Jamie, tell me, why is the topic of Australia's water supply coming to the boil? Well, for some of us, it's always on the boil. I grew up in outback South Australia and I now live in Adelaide. So all we have to do is turn on the tap to know how much of an issue water quality can be. That's why the state of the River Murray sits so high on South Australia's particular radar. But the problem we have to live through a few years back during the millennium drought and may soon be coming to a town near you. It's such a big deal now that Australia's beloved CSIRO has this year embraced it as a specific mission. It's joining the challenges of drought resilience, future protein supply, hydrogen industry, microbial resistance, improved agricultural output, and the race to net zero at the top of its list of priorities. So on that note with us today is the CSIRO's head of the new AquaWatch mission, Dr. Alex Held. Hello, Dr. Held. What do you Morning. want to do with our water? What is it you want to do with our water and why? Thank you. Thanks for, for the opportunity. We are setting up this AquaWatch mission to give everyone a lot, a lot better information about water quality before they go swimming, before they go for surf or fishing. And also for industry, it might be quite important to know what's going to be the water quality for flowing by your fish farm, for instance. So we want to create a system that brings existing measurements together already that exist around the country that different agencies are already measuring, but combining those with additional sensors that we're deploying and using satellite technology to combine all these data sets into into a nice and easy to use information system that everybody can use like a weather forecast today. Can you tell us about the types of sensors you're rolling out and what they're looking for and how they're doing it? Yeah, thank you. Normally what we deploy is what we almost call like a water station. Imagine a weather station on land. This is a water station with lots of different sensors measuring different things. We will be measuring how salty the water is, salinity, the temperature of the water. Again, this is done both in inland water bodies, lakes and rivers, but also off the coast. We're measuring something called chlorophyll, which gives us how much living and biological activity there is in the water. We're measuring the amount of carbon 
uh, dissolved in water, which is quite important for understanding some of the dynamics of the ecosystems around the water bodies. Of course, what you can see from space sometimes is the turbidity, the sediments coming down the rivers at, to the coastline. Things like dissolved oxygen is a really important variable because that's what has caused some of the fish kills you, we would have seen in the news. Usually that's because there's not enough oxygen in the water for them to then breathe through their gills and usually, unfortunately, they die. And we're also measuring some nutrients. This is called nitrate sensors and we that can be an indicator of sometimes fertilizer or too much nutrient going into the water bodies. Are there any of these sensors in place yet, Dr. Held? Yeah, the ones we just set up up in the southern Great Barrier Reef in Keppel Bay in the Fitzroy River is, is one example. And we have about five or six or seven now pilot sites around the country where we're deploying them gradually over the next little while to really help us understand how do you combine all these different data sets with satellite data. So we're using pilot sites as a test case and also work with local communities that can help us interpret the data. Why suddenly is chlorophyll so high? Usually you have local experts in rivers and water managers that can tell us what's happening and why we're seeing those changes. So it's really important for us to have a system that is gradually growing, co-designed with local users and local water managers, and also make sure that when it's up and going, that the information goes to them in the right way so they can use it and make decisions quickly from that. How important is early warning of an algal bloom or oxygen depletion or, as you mentioned, a carbon plume, which is, as you mentioned before, to me earlier, a a rush of decomposed plant matter into a waterway to someone like a local town or a fish farmer or a agricultural operator. As an example, a local town that's taking water from a from a river or a dam, if we can warn them beforehand that there is a harmful algae bloom either flowing by or starting to bloom in their local uh, dam, they can shut down that intake beforehand. It goes into the system. Aquaculture farms, for instance, if we have something which is another harmful algae bloom, which is called a red tide offshore, they might be able to move them out of the way or harvest the fish or the oysters before it gets into their system and then completely unusable and toxic for human consumption. So this early warning is really important. And we want this is hopefully going to be one of the major impacts of AquaWatches, provide that a warning up front that something bad is coming. So when you're talking about early warning, how early? What sort of time frame? At least today is something we're shooting for, but hopefully we can do it even even more longer than that. And that's why we're also using some of the new data and analysis techniques like machine learning and artificial intelligence to see how far we can push and how precise can we do this. Yeah, we're going to throw a lot of technologies at this and see, see what we can make it work for people. The first of your test sites saw a deployment this month, the Southern Great Barrier Reef. But I understand that other regions like Moreton Bay and even Victoria's Hume Dam are part of your test project. Could you walk us through one of these to sort of explain that kind of the top-down process as it's beginning now, but also where it would lead to for that example in the future? Let me pick Hume Dam because that's used a lot for irrigation inland. It's an important inland water body, and that has often issues with cyanobacteria or toxic blue-green algae blooming, especially when the water flows are low, when it's 
the, the water is getting warmer. There are some sensors already placed in situ there, and we're starting to collect some satellite data over that site as well to try to understand the dynamics of the lake. It's another one where we think that there is a value in knowing not just at one point what the concentrations or the different measurements are in one or two locations, but to have a satellite imagery, it's a big, it's a relatively large water body. You can see different parts of the, the lake or, or the dam having different concentrations of, let's say, blue-green algae and things like that. So you should be able to tap if you still need water for irrigation, especially if it's to irrigate, let's say, fresh vegetables and things like that. You don't want to really mix it in with a lot of the toxic algae at the same time when you irrigate them. So you might be able to take the water from a different part of the dam that's not so contaminated but if you still need water from that dam. So that would be sort of the information we would make available to those who are managing the water releases from the dam and also who want to use the water for different purposes in agriculture for irrigation purposes, for instance. You mentioned satellites there. What can a satellite photo tell us and how does it tell us that? So will we be needing to have water bureau personnel scouring over pictures with the microscopes and the magnifying glasses to see what's happening? Or are there ways and forms of analyzing the data and are these just simple photographs that's how it used to be done before but now we're using very high computing infrastructure cloud computing to actually do this all digitally so uh, our scientists in csro and many other parts of the world have developed ways to analyze the measurements made from space so we don't always call them just a picture, it's a measurement. It, it measures the amount of light and the frequency of and the wavelengths of the, that light coming back at the satellite as reflected by the water from using sunlight. And those different colors, let's say, that we can see in a, in a satellite image are indicative of some of these chemicals in the water. So you can see a water body being very green. Of course, that's the same that our eyes can see. But within that green signal that we can see there's other more subtle colors that we can, for instance, associate to certain pigments and certain type of chemicals in, in certain algae, for instance, which make, which helps us identify that they're actually toxic blue-green algae, not normal green algae. But it can still only measure a limited number of elements, and that's why you still need to have a water station put in a waterway, just as we need to have a weather station on the ground to supplement the satellite photo. It Exactly. Some nutrients we cannot see from space. So exactly. That's the power of AquaWatch going to be where we combine these different data sets. But space gives you that nice, uh, large synoptic view of the whole lake or coastal zone. Then you can then make decisions around where you want to place your intakes or where you're going to go swimming or fishing and things like that. Back on land or in the water, you've mentioned that you'll be working with regional communities and industries. Can you tell us how this might work? We have local university groups as well as uh, usually state governments or community groups that are already measuring and interested in water quality as part of uh, the partnership in each of these pilot projects. We're also making sure that we are engaging uh, with First Nations indigenous communities that have a really key interest in, in those water bodies as well. So each of these pilots is like a small community and a small ecosystem of, of people looking at and helping us, again, interpret the data we can measure with some of these sensors, but also help us understand what are causing some of these water quality problems that we can see. And with each of these communities, there will be a conversation about how do we make the data available, including the satellite images, 
for instance, on their smartphone? How would they like to see that served to them in the most useful way that they can then use it for decision making? How does a group or a body get involved? Are you looking for new recruits at the moment or are you you sort of going to try and settle things in with these first seven test sites? Over the next three or four years, we will mostly work on these uh, small number of test sites, make sure that the technology and the data processing and the data pipelines from the sensors into the data system, as well as the satellite data all coming together in the right place. That might take us a few years to sort out, at least for these sites, and we will gradually increase the number of test sites. We hope that by, say, 2026, we will have a, a good number of these test sites with local communities well engaged. And very soon after that, we hope to then roll it out for the whole country. Is this sort of system in place in other parts of the world? Interestingly, we've been quite surprised to see that most of other parts of the world either use only satellite data or only in-situ sensors, and hardly anybody is using all these new computer techniques to do the forecasting. Again, Australia leading the charge here, and we hope to we hope to then eventually roll this out internationally. We have a lot of interest now for a few overseas partners in working with us on this because somehow they hadn't thought of it or they hadn't figured out how to do this. So it'll be fantastic uh, over the next few years for us. What do you see the CSIRO's greatest challenges being with this project? Is it building and rolling out enough sensors? Is it interpreting the data that you get from the variety of sources? Or is it building the algorithms that you need to project into the future what might be happening? I guess the challenges over the next few years will be all the the, the ways to analyze and bring all the data together and processing it in a way that makes sense. As we roll out more and more sites, I think we will need help and partnerships to put more sensors in the landscape. Make sure that sensors are interconnected and talking to each other and uplinking their data properly. And in an ideal world, we would also like to be able to customize uh, the next generation of satellite sensors specifically for water quality applications. That will take time. And we're working with some partners already on this. These are not low-cost things. Amazing stuff. I'd like to thank my colleague, Jamie Seidel, and our special guest, Dr. Alex Held. Thank you, Dr. Held. We've heard a bit about AquaWatch, and it's quite fascinating stuff. You've been listening to Cosmos Country, the podcast that goes beyond the city limits to explore how rural and regional Australia is adapting to climate change. I look forward to joining you again next time. You've been listening to Cosmos Country, a look at how regional Australia is preparing for and adapting to climate change. Cosmos Country is supported by the Walkley Foundation and Meta. For more information and to listen to the whole series of Cosmos Country podcasts, visit the website, cosmosmagazine.com.